I don't think it is an exaggeration to say that much of the power of the Catholic priesthood comes from its long and continued tradition of celibacy. There are many dedicated Christian ministers in this world of innumerable denominations, all of whom are deeply dedicated to ministry and holiness. And yet, there is still something special and mysterious about the Catholic priest in the cultural mind, with Catholic priests playing an outsized role in dramatic movies and popular imagination. It always ends up being me who gets the call when somebody thinks they have a demon. Sacramentally, of course, the power of the priesthood has nothing to do with celibacy. Christ gave sacramental power to his church through the apostles, and this power was passed on through the centuries by the laying on of hands, what we today call holy orders. Any man who is ordained a priest, celibate or not, participates in the same sacramental ministry. But this ordination cannot fully explain how people treat priests. Some people look at me like I'm an alien, like something hatched from an egg. They are fascinated by the priesthood because they cannot imagine anything in the world that would compel them to be a priest. Other people, like many of our parishioners in Bellingham, treat me with an incredible depth of care and affection, which has to be a response to my priesthood, since I myself am not particularly personable or affectionate. There is something truly mysterious and compelling about the Catholic priest, and I am convinced that it is celibacy. Of course, the same could be true, the same is true about nuns and monks, but it's been a while since we've had a stable community of either in Bellingham, so I'm going to keep with the image of priesthood if that's okay. Now, this mysterious, compelling nature of celibacy is by design. Celibacy is one of the three evangelical counsels, along with poverty and obedience, which counteract the powerful temptations of wealth, pleasure, and power. When a person completely renounces wealth in favor of poverty, pleasure in favor of chastity, and power in favor of obedience— that person's life suddenly becomes a living sign of the gospel, a tangible witness that there is something beyond this world that is worth the renunciation of this world. That is why they are called the evangelical councils. They evangelize. The celibacy of the Catholic priesthood is intended to show us that Jesus is real, and that grace is powerful. We sometimes hear talk today about a desire to move the priesthood away from celibacy. But in my opinion, this would be an absolute disaster for the Church and the priesthood. As the Second Vatican Council said, perfect and perpetual continence for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, that is, celibacy, 
is held by the Church to be of great value in a special manner for the priestly life. It is, at the same time, a sign and a stimulus for pastoral charity, that is, love for our people, and a special source of spiritual fecundity in the world, that is, it helps us be good at our mission. A sign and a stimulus for pastoral charity and a special sign of spiritual fecundity in the world. Allow me to illustrate two ways in which this is true. First and foremost, we have St. Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians in our second reading, where he says, Brothers and sisters, I should like you to be free of anxieties. An unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But a married man is anxious about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and he is divided. I am telling you this for your own benefit, not to impose a restraint upon you, but for the sake of propriety and adherence to the Lord without distraction. Now, before I explain this, I think it is important to read something else St. Paul wrote only a few verses earlier in the same letter. He said, Indeed, I wish everyone to be as I am, that is, unmarried. But each has a particular gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. St. Paul was a celibate and wished everyone to be a celibate. But he also recognized that this was his own bias, or his own calling, and that God does call different people to different charisms or vocations. Like Jesus telling the rich young man to sell all he had and give the money to the poor, the evangelical councils are calls to specific individuals, not general requirements for all Christians. Though we must all practice poverty, chastity, and obedience, only some of us must do so in a radical, life-altering way for the sake of the kingdom. I don't want anyone to hear St. Paul and think that because they are married, they somehow do not love God. That is not what St. Paul is saying. Nevertheless, It is true that an unmarried man is able to put more mental energy into the things of the Lord without having to divide his time or his anxieties. Even if the Lord does not call everyone to celibacy, it is a gift to all of us in the Church that he should at least call his priests to celibacy so that we might be ministered to by men with undivided hearts. To use another Pauline analogy, Christ is the bridegroom of the church. So if the priest dares to stand in the place of Christ, we should demand that he love the church, which is to say all of you, with the same undivided fidelity with which he would love his own wife. I can tell you that this has been absolutely true in my own life. In those blessedly rare times when I allow my imagination to run to places not appropriate for a celibate, 
I can absolutely tell that I am worse at preaching, worse at confessions, worse at loving my parishioners. I am a much better priest when I minister with an undivided heart. Second, beyond preaching the gospel and preserving an undivided heart, celibacy also provides the church with the gift of empathy. By way of analogy, when I was a sophomore in high school, I swore never to drink alcohol recreationally. I was deeply saddened by how many of my peers were already getting drunk on the weekends at the age of 16, and I struggled to find an adult who could understand why this made me so sad. This was such a traumatic experience for me that I forswore alcohol forever, specifically so that I could grow up to be an understanding ear for all those who cannot or do not drink. Well, the same is true with celibacy. There are many people in this world for whom a sexual relationship is not a moral option, from the unmarried to widows and widowers to those who are divorced and remarried outside the church to those who are same-sex attracted. And to these, add to these the great number of people, married and unmarried, who are addicted to pornography and masturbation, and there is an overwhelming need for pastoral ministers who know what it means to live celibately. A priest friend of mine once challenged a man on a sexual sin, and that man replied, But Father, you don't know how hard it is not to have sex. That man did not realize why that was funny. Yes, we do know. That's the whole point. We do know how hard it is. I would feel like a hypocrite for calling people to the difficult demands of sexual discipline if the church did not call me to exercise that discipline first and foremost. Which brings me to my final point about priestly celibacy. As I mentioned before, there are calls from various sectors to end the discipline of priestly celibacy, though many of these calls are just warmed-over arguments from the Reformation, or the opening salvo of a complete rejection of all of the Church's sexual teachings. But the one argument against priestly celibacy that I always pay attention to is the one that says that ending priestly celibacy would have prevented the sex abuse crisis. Now, anyone who knows how prevalent sexual abuse is in families, schools, and other organizations will know that there is not a factual basis to this claim. Getting married does not magically heal a sexual predator. This argument does, however, reveal the depth of the betrayal felt by Catholics at the revelations of sexual abuse by priests. My argument in this homily is that celibacy should make priests more loving, attentive, empathetic, holy, and evangelical. But this is everything abuser priests are not. So there seems to be a contradiction. But it's a contradiction that I believe actually strengthens the argument for celibacy, as opposed to undercutting it. 
Ask yourselves, is the reason we feel so betrayed by these abuser priests precisely because they made a public vow to renounce everything for the sake of the kingdom and the church? Would we have felt as betrayed if they had not first made such a public declaration of dedication to God? Would it have hurt as much as it did if they had not first promised to love us unconditionally with an undivided heart? As with all things in this world, the greatest evils come from the corruption of the greatest goods. And the great evil of the sex abuse crisis came from the corruption of the great good of clerical celibacy. My friends, very early in my priesthood, someone asked me if the church changed her teaching on priestly celibacy, whether I would get married. I surprised even myself when I answered, no, I would not. It is not that I do not desire marriage. Part of me does even now. But celibacy is a gift from the Lord. Even though I am a flawed and broken human being like any of us, celibacy helps me to be a holier and more loving priest for my people. And I would not trade that for anything.